Welcome to Build to Lead, forming the healthcare leaders of tomorrow. Back at you for season three. There's no denying that the last two to three years have been tough, and news cycles continue to report on the doom and gloom happening at home and abroad. And today, we want to take a breather from that and reflect on something more positive joy. But what is joy? Joy is energy. Joy is resistance. Joy is being in your mojo. Let's learn together on season three of Built to Lead, getting back to joy. Welcome back to Built to Lead season three, episode three, Meaning and Joy, part two. I'm Mubin. And I'm Matthew. And today we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Zainak Hayat about meaning. We're picking up right where we left off last week and continuing to discuss the article, What's the Purpose of Your Purpose? So, Mubin, where do you actually find your meaning? That's a good question, Matthew. Um, I don't think there's, there, there's a particular moment where I've found meaning as singular. But there have been many multiple instances, events, experiences where I've found meaning uh, re- in relational to to what I was doing. So essentially examples like I find a lot of meaning in nurturing my connections with, with different individuals and family and friends and, and colleagues, as well as even pursuing purposeful goals. Like if I have something that I need to accomplish and I'm able to devote all my time to it as well as making kind of sense of life experiences in general. I think that comes with a lot of like self-awareness, focus, and and discovering what my own life's purpose is. And when I'm, when I'm able to give, my, give myself the, that time in order to kind of find meaning, um, I'm able to be a better person. And so there have been certain moments along my life where I've been able to find meaning in different instances. Mm-hmm. And you're really talking about those connections, talking about resonating with people, which I think that you're doing. And all those things that we talked about and we looked at in these discussions with Zena leads to your purpose. So can you maybe even identify it, maybe what your purpose is and maybe helping out? Because I know you've been doing a lot of different, let's say, consultancy groups um, that you created or you're building different networks, uh, communities, trying to find that meaning as an emerging leader. Yeah, Absolutely. I think my, for me, one of the, the, the greatest ways that I find my meaning is when I'm able to connect with another person. Um, and that happens through putting myself in their shoes, understanding their, sto- their own stories, and, and finding ways that we can resonate with one another. Um, I've been able to, I've, been, I've had the privilege to be in different places uh, at privileged times in order to contribute in impactful ways. And, and the reason why I've been able to do that is there's been an alignment um, between my values, people's stories, and bringing all of that into deliverables, into into the work that I have to achieve. And so I think this is something that we talk about in this episode, but you're, when you're able to know people, not only in their work environments, but outside their work environments, I think when you come back in order to meet those deliverables, the work gets a little easier. Because you know who they are, you know their strengths, yeah. and you know their weaknesses, and where you can support them for them for them to be the best forms of themselves, and and likewise. Mm-hmm. I think even one of the key words as we're looking at meaning um, in these episodes is values that you talked about. And Zane even talked about that too. So it's really values over everything. Um, I said it before. It's also Toronto over everything. 
<laughs> um, but honestly, that statement is just so powerful because the values are going to pretty much anchor you. Zena talks about some of those wicked problems, how it gets messy, and understanding your values, working with different people in those organizations, whether it's at work or in the community, I think really helps um, you to find that meaning and that purpose. So let's even just get back into our conversation with Zena. So here's part two. I love this idea that you've kind of mentioned or disrupted where it's like, we need to stop using these words like like strategy, innovation, and, and future, and all these words. And we need to replace that with why, how, and, and what. Like what, like come down to these bases, and then all the other things will just, you know, an engaged workforce is, is one that's gonna drive. Um, and so let that be the driver. So the article kind of talks talked on a couple of things that kind of organizations get, get wrong. And it talks about the competence and the cause gap, where there's a lack of connection between your organization and espoused causes. And then there's a competence culture gap where it talks about when you can create value for customers, but they're not really there as a great employer. So kind of when we're thinking about Amazon and then the warehouse workers. And then and then there's a culture cause gap, which is when we have a cause related purpose, but the engagement is low, suggesting a greater need to, to focus. So when we kind of reflect over your, your own leadership journey over time, how have you kind of worked to close any of these gaps and, and, and worked between what you wanted to achieve and what you were doing in real time? I mean, so there's a few ways, right? So I've never really had a, a leadership role where I'm steering the entire ship, right, of a large org. I, that's just not my style. Um, I, I prefer to kind of have my sleeves rolled up and producing. That's kind of been my pattern. So I haven't directly had to work on closing those gaps, like at a major org level, or you know what I mean? Um, but like I said, I know we had just gone through this in my last year or two before I left SE Health. Um, my team led the methodology to close those gaps in our org, or to at least refine the language we're using to define competence, culture, and cause to be consistent with actually what we're doing, because there were some mismatches that weren't resonating. Um, so that was kind of the one major way I'd say. And I think that's had far reaching effects on, on many levels. Uh, I think, you know, within my own work, let's say where I have a bit of control, you know, whatever my, you know, in whatever roles I've had. Um, I think that, you know, I don't know, maybe because I have to work on something that is aligned with mission. So I don't think I have a problem with a culture gap. So I start uh, the, the cause gap. And then the culture is like who I choose to hire or choose to work with. So I kind of handpick. And if the culture's not right of any individual, they're kind of gone, right? It, it, it just doesn't work, you know, instantly. So either, you know, you don't let it in at the intake valve, you know, or as soon as it doesn't quite vibe, they're out, right? Whether that's a partner whose culture doesn't work, a funder, you know what I mean? I don't be beholden or, or a team member. Uh, and then competence again, like, you know, yeah, I hire for it, right? Or I look for it. So uh, I've never found those gaps to be the problem. I find the hard part is the jobs left to get done, like I said, in, in messy healthcare problems, is at the boundaries of anything I control and all these other places in the system. And the chances they're all going to be jiving the same way is like impossible. And that's where the, that's where you lose a lot of energy is all this friction and the, the disconnect between competence, culture, cause with all the others you need to work together with to actually take care of patients well. 
you know, because ultimately that's why we do this work. So, so that's where I'd say the energy problems are. And I don't think I have a greatly good answer for that, to be honest. I don't think I've cracked it. Well, with all your experience, Zane, I'm pretty sure you do have a lot of experience in that, whether it's the hiring, the firing, building the competence, or even working on those wicked problems that you said you do love working on. But maybe can you just share with our listeners, is there any toolkits, resources, or maybe there's mentors that help to show you how to actually do this? Yeah. So absolutely. So again, if you find yourself, which probably everybody will end up being in this space of solving what I call wicked problems in healthcare, so anything that's kind of spanning the boundaries of people, assets, whatever expertise, um, you need what I call the theory of change, right? So not a change management model, because you're not here to change anybody, but a theory of change, a true defensible theory, just like any other theory of how to do what I call system change. That's because that's what it is. This is true system change. And so my best uh, trainer and mentor for that has been, um, her name's Helen Bevan. So she was, you know, for the longest time, she just um, retired her tenure. Uh, She was called the Chief Transformation Officer of the National Health Service in the UK, which is a 95 million, or sorry, 65 million person healthcare system where, you know, there's so many things they could fix, just like all of our healthcare systems. But they knew, actually, if you fix mindsets and train people how to uh, do social movements for change, um, you will solve a lot of the problems, like work on that. And so uh, she does like a six week course for free for the whole world uh, called the School for Change Agents. I took it, I think I take it every year because every time I learn something and amazing methodologies for theories of change. And so I just pick one of her frameworks for my the problem I'm solving. And I use that as the scaffold onto which we do our work. A typical theory of change, you usually work, you know, at a minimum on three layers. So imagine any project management or program management, you know, as a very predictable process, right? You know, you've got a beginning and you've got milestones and, you know, where you want to get. You're kind of running that three times. One is on the actual solution, right? And that's what we all obsess about because we can tangibly, you know, wrap our arms around whatever, the new care model or the new intervention or the new policy or the new whatever, so that's the solution there. And you got to do that well. I think there's pretty good methodologies for, you know, taking a problem and, you know, designing a better way to do it, whether that's design thinking or whatever. But that's not enough. The next layer is the capacity layer. Well, if it's a messy enough problem, there's people at the heart of it, a lot of people with very different starting points. So you need as much rigor and methodology around how are you going to build the capacity in the people who ultimately will be the ones designing, delivering and scaling whatever is this new thing. And that needs a whole set of methodologies that people just kind of assume is going to come along later because you're going to hire a consultant to do change management. No, it's not. You build the capacity as you go. And then that's not enough. The third layer is the policy layer. Because if it's a messy enough problem that, you know, has been intractable for 50 years and, you know, has been attempted, attempted over, it's probably because at the heart of it, there's some policy or regulation or rule that is the lock and the key, right? That is the reason. And you unlock that policy and everything else flows. And I think either because we think it's way too damn hard to change a policy or a rule or regulation, we toil on the solution. We do a thousand pilots. We toil on the change management and we just think we're going to train it to death to make these nurses behave different or whatever. But put the damn methodology on policy innovation and then off you go. And, And I think running all three of those at the same time is really hard because who's good at all three, right? Most of us are pretty good at solution. Most don't know the shit, anything about the other two. So 
Uh, my metaphor is like, I don't know if you guys ever seen like the halftime show at the Raptors. There's like the people with the spinning plates. Like you literally need to have all three spinning really well at the same time using completely different methodologies for each. And that is not a skill set. I don't think, you know, very many, if not any, but he has in Canadian healthcare. There's definitely a lot to take away there. That I I love the notion of of kind of really practicing the theory of change, right? Understanding what that means. Again, I love your thoughts on systems change. I think that is a conversation that is so tough to have. Like we'll point out all the issues and then they all boil down to systems change and then we try to and then we try to deconstruct that systems change and that's where we get stuck. And they were like, "Oh, we can't move this innovation." Yeah. Or, or, or we say, yeah. Or we say, you know, that's government. What the hell's government? No, it's not. You're the system. I'm the system. So that's what I'm saying is like, wade into system change. And they're, you know, these theories of change, guys, these are pretty textbook. Like they're not that hard. And there's 50 million of them. Like pick one and just use it. You know, it's not like rocket science, honestly, it's hard work. And you know, the, 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 you know, the, the topology of problems left to solve or the ecology, I say, of problems and wicked problems or complex problems, they're the kind of thing where you only understand the problem once you start solving it. You'll never know it before you get started. And that is not a comfortable space for people. Right? We want to study it and research it and get, you know, commission a study and get a paper and do analysis. And then we're like, OK, now I'm going to. No, 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 no. You figure it out when you're in it. And so again, just as just a skill set and a methodology, people just got to get used to doing more and we got to train people to do this. And we've obsessed in healthcare with training people on fricking quality improvement. Well, yeah, sure. That's going to be awesome for making your industrial model of care meet the quality guidelines, but that assumes what you're doing is the right way to do things. And I'm saying it's not right. You need just as much rigor and training on system change. Uh, and I don't see very many doing that anywhere in Canada, to be honest, certainly not at our academic institutions. So for emerging leaders, and this just sparked my interest, but like for emerging leaders who are currently in the systems, kind of academic systems training, what are some key qualities or skill sets that would you recommend for them to really start practicing to, to really, you know, when they get gain that experience? So when they're in that system, they can start advocating and, you know, being bold about it. So like, what are some key qualities and skill sets there? I think, you know, like there's just like things around and again, there's, you know, um, pedagogy around this and curriculum and training you can do or you learn it on the job uh, from others who do it. You know, let's call it systems thinking. Uh, that's a true thing, right? It's not just a thing you say, you know, like there's a true way for your brain to default to seeing any problem and right away you see the whole system around it. You don't take the problem for face value. You don't wait times in the ER is not an ER problem, <laughs> right? The fact that in British Columbia right now, you know, I forget the number of people don't have a primary care physician. It's not about the supply of primary care physician at all, but that's what they want to think it is, you know? So I think learning to do that naturally, and then that links to another sister skill set, which really at the Rotman Business School, where I'm a professor, was a bit, a bit of the renaissance of the school under the leadership of our former dean, Roger Martin, which is integrative thinking. Like that's the new skill set, right? How can you take concepts and link them across so many domains, like just naturally, like that's just how your brain works, that you can find patterns and see connections and don't shy away from those things. But when you see them, you wade in deeper, right? 
it is very safe to not be an integrative thinker. Just wake up every day, stay in your lane. And guess what? Staying in your lane and being really good at your lane is very hard. That's like normal work. Millions of textbooks have been written about how to stay in your lane and be you know, productive or quality. But I'm just saying the more you do that, you're actually going to you know, make the gap between the healthcare system we want and the healthcare system we have even wider you know, if you don't do these things. So like those kinds of things. So you can learn them and train them. Like I said, take uh, Helen Bevan's uh, School for Change Agents course. It's free. Um, uh, There's other methods or, you know, again, in your side hustle or in your current org, hang out and work on a team that's working this way and learn the methods from them, whether that's called an innovation team or a systems change team or whatever. Uh, Doing it is the best way to learn it. No, that's great. You gave us a lot of to think about, a lot of me- different methodology, um, that integrated thinking, that system thinking, as you're saying, how do we find those connections? And you're really giving us the steps to kind of find that purpose and more about that why and that meaning. So the article actually has different five steps. Um, it really just talks about first identifying the internal constituents, uh, what their stake is in the purpose. So just understanding like their why, that's based like a needs assessment. And then two is really just remembering that your purpose can be defined in the what, the why, or the how, and how do you actually find one that actually works for you? And then we already we talked about culture is over strategy, but at the same time, you do have to link that purpose, that why to a strategy. So what does that look like in the real world? And then we talked about that silo thinking. So that's the fourth step. So purpose can be fulfilled if we're really just motivated by self-interest. If it's really just like my department versus your department, if it's us versus them, like that's not going to work at all in terms of finding that meaning. And then the fifth step and final one is really about how do you embed that purpose into behavior? So we talked about change management, that theory of change. So those daily habits, how do we actually manifest that into the purpose and meaning into that why that we're actually seeking? So I don't know if you have any last thoughts on the article and these these five steps for us. Yeah, I think they're right. I mean, they're again pretty standard stuff. You can't really disagree with it. There's different ways to get at it. That's their five steps. That's fine. I think the only thing I'll just say about the word strategy, again, because everybody likes to throw it around. The end of the day, right, all strategy is, is where are you going to focus your resources? And the beautiful thing about healthcare, like, is there's like a thousand opportunities of where you can choose to focus your strategy. There's always, whether you're, you know, Matthew, like you at Baycrest, or uh, me at Teladoc, the opportunities to direct your cap- your competencies, right, are infinite because there's so much to do. There's so much broken that's not working. So just like freaking make a decision and put two or three things and that's it. That's strategy. And guess what? It's always right. There's no really wrong strategy. I mean, unless you really screw it up because like everything's a trade-off you know, uh, of, you know, you just choose to focus. And then all that does is, wow, is that liberating for everybody else? Because we've chosen to do these three things for the next, I don't know, year, six months, five years, it doesn't matter. Then now you don't waste your time trying to dilute all your competencies uh, across, you know, spread it like peanut butter, you know, and it doesn't mean those other problems are worse or inferior or like don't deserve to be solved. But like, do you want to get anything done? That's all strategy is, right? So I think like just that's what I, I point to that I find people get really wrong. Or I've, I've worked with so many health orgs that are like, we're doing our strategic plan. And then they go through this huge process 
and they do 5,000 interviews and they do all these retreats and they hire the big expensive firms. And in the end, honestly, everyone's strategic plan says the exact same five things. I'm like, did you really need to go through all that to arrive at the exact same things everyone else? And they're so motherhood, quality, patient experience. I'm like, what is that? No, strategy is where are we going to focus our competencies to move the needle on something, you know? So anyway, that's just like my little soapbox about the word strategy, but damn, is it important because we're all working with very, very limited assets and resources, and it's really worse right now. So, you know, just in honor of your damn people, you know, focus on a couple things, really important things, and then just ignore all the other stuff and move on. I I love that. I honestly, the next time I, I use the word strategy, I'm going to think twice to kind of where are we using where are we focusing to to put in our resources? What is our focus? Yeah. <laughs> and therefore, explicitly, what are we not? Very Absolutely. explicitly, what are we not? Because if you don't make it explicit, everything is still important, and then everybody will just do everything. Absolutely, and I loved your I loved your kind of idea of the trade offs, right? Like it's like you don't know what is wrong or what is right until you actually apply that focus into field and kind of get the returns and then you rework that structure, right? And then you rework to see, okay, what's worked, what's not, if this has worked, all right, next, where do we focus those resources again, somewhere else, and then that's how you continue the progress. And so I loved your idea of the trade-offs. So part of the strategy thing you just said, Mobin, is um, again, in the industrial era, which we have not left yet in healthcare, you know, you set strategy based on pretty predictable competencies, and pretty predictable, um, you know, let's call them competitors or context. So where you're in control of the variables and all you need to do is pick the right strategy and, and you know, control execution. And so what you just described, Mobin, is, you know, as you learn, as you do that, you might pivot if, you know, maybe assumptions you made in your strategy were wrong. But we're in a completely new era. There's that. And your external environment is changing at a way faster pace then you can change on the inside. So you need to keep pivoting your strategy, not whether or not what you're doing is working or not. Sometimes that's why, but the external context is going to shift under your legs and then you got to be ready. And so again, when I meet these health orgs who not only after like flushing thousands and thousands of dollars and hours of people's time to come up with the strategy for the next five years, you know, and they say the same motherhood statements as everybody else, which to me is not a strategy. Then they're locked in for five years. I'm like, no, no, no. The, the strategy for five years is dead, right? We're now on a rolling strategy, which again is not a skill set. We love to wait and every five years do the strategic plan in healthcare and put it on our website. No, no, no. So because, you know, COVID's going to come or a war in Ukraine's going to come or inflation that we've never seen in decades is going to come, or the workforce is going to, you know, quit in, in, you know, massive exodus is going to come. And then your strategy's done, right? You need to repivot. So I think it, like that's the thing is it's both constantly testing your strategic conceptions in the field and then being ready to pivot when the market conditions uh, evolve. And they're, those are completely out of your control. And we don't know how to do that very well in healthcare that that was that was fantastic thank you so much for your thoughts on that and there's a lot to take away right and so for listeners i mean we want to hear your thoughts on on what's being shared today so 
if you are hearing this episode and after you hear it, be sure to kind of, you know, talk to us on our social media, kind of tag Zena in, in tweets and let her know what your thoughts are. And if you kind of agree and disagree, because we, we live in a world of perspective. So Sharon, we'd love to engage through there. Um, as we near the end of today's episode podcast, in season three, we have introduced a new segment, Zena, and it's called Rapid Fire, where Matt and I will ask you five questions and you'll have to answer each one of them in a couple of words or a sentence max. So this is kind of going to be a, a fun way to get to know you a little deeper and end the episode with some excitement. So um, are you ready? Bring it on. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. So let's get started. Uh, so here's the first question. It's been a very long day and you just got home. What is the very first thing you're going to do? Uh, take my shoes off, take my business clothes off, put on my sweats and uh, sit on the couch nice any netflix after that or no i don't watch just sit i don't watch okay TV. <laughs> so the second question we have for you what's one thing or person in your life that is bringing you joy right now uh like i said my thing is my peloton i'm looking at it right <laughs> now I, I do it every day it's, it's like church for me uh, every morning uh, and i'm just getting a ton of joy on multiple levels from it yeah, and, and you get a chance to explore different trails in different cities and stuff. So that's that's fun. In yeah, and di different teachers, different <laughs> trainers, different music I would have never, ever listened to. So yeah, it's lots of joy for my Peloton. Love that. Um, what is one thing leaders can say or do to bring joy to their teams? I think just be very vulnerable and extremely authentic. I think that brings joy because it humanizes uh, people. Uh, and I think, you know, that's just not hard to do, you know, but it has a big impact. The next question is, what's the last show? Now, I know you mentioned that you don't watch TV, so you can mention a book or even a podcast. What's the last show that you binged and you loved? Oh, I just finished Ozark season four. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, up, up, up way too late. I still late. need to watch it. Yeah, you got to watch it, Matthew. I was up way too late because I couldn't stop. Yeah, and then, I, then you feel this major detachment when it's over. So this is the last question we have for you. So fill in the blank. Joy is. Joy is being in your mojo. I don't know how to, what that is. Just when it just it sits right with you. You feel good in your skin. You feel at peace with whatever you're doing, no matter how messed up and hard and brutal it is. Like, I, I find that's joy. Joy is your mojo. <laughs> joy is your mojo. Okay, that's good. We're going to need a way to to get some big sign to put that on. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Zaina, it has been such a pleasure and it has been so much fun having you on Built to Lead with us. We hope you had fun as well. That was really fun. That was a great discussion, uh, you know, on a very different level than most of these that I do. So thanks, guys. No, of course. Thank you so much for your time, conviction, and commitment to building leadership. I'm sure that this has been super meaningful to our listeners, and we hope that they learn from your experience and expertise. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Wow. So whether it's simplifying to focus just on what is the most important, both with respect to strategy or to your life in general, or maybe it's working on applying models of change to help us get closer to meaning, we hope you picked up a few helpful tips or two, and hopefully even more in today's episode. Zaina mentioned the Helen Bevin School for Change Agents. And if this is something of interest to you, we have included a link in our episode description. 
along with a link to what's the purpose of your purpose. Thanks so much for joining us on our two-part series on finding meaning and more and joy. Next week, we will be sharing the first of two episodes on joy in relationships. We're going to be joined by a guest who completely flips the topic on its head. And I promise, wherever you think it's going to go, that's not where this is going. And you don't want to miss where this is headed. So we'll see you next week. And until then, we wish you a smile, some good mojo, as Zaina would put it, and joy. Thank you for joining us on Built to Lead, Season 3, Getting Back to Joy. Built to Lead is created and hosted by Matthew Goldberg and co-hosted by Mubin Lalani. Built to Lead is a companion podcast to the Vernissage Health Dialogue series at the Institute of Health Policy, Management and Evaluation at the University of Toronto. Tell us what you thought about this week's episode. You can find us on LinkedIn at Vernissage Health and on Instagram at Vernissage Health. You'll find both of these in the episode description. Today's episode was produced by Hannah Hodgins and Tony DeShenza with music composed by Sindhu. Special thanks to Wendy Nelson, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Health Policy Management and Evaluation. <laughs>